let's take our Bibles tonight, if you would please, and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And we continue our study this evening on the subject of evangelism. I intended at the beginning of the summer that we would spend our summer evenings uh, in this particular area, which is one I think is sorely needed. Uh, I believe that our church has become somewhat stagnant, and we maybe have not had the enthusiasm that we need for uh, teaching people the truth and bringing them the essential message of salvation that people need to hear. And so I, uh, I wanted to do this series, and now the summer has come and gone. I, I think what we are, maybe a day or two past the, did fall start? Was I paying attention correctly? I think fall started. So here we are in the fall, and we're still on this subject. But this evening, our focus shifts just a little bit. Uh, we've discussed the, the need for the gospel, and we've talked about the condition of man. We've spoke about how God blesses the preaching of the word and how that there's no one who can come to the knowledge of salvation without the Holy Spirit working in their heart. And the Holy Spirit takes the preached word of God in order to make that effectual in that person's heart so they can understand it and believe it. In the last message, I spoke about the content of the gospel. And we looked at Peter's message in Acts chapter 3. And we saw there how his message contained all the basic elements that are needed to tell people how to be saved. But he really gave a very comprehensive look at that, going all the way from a sinner's natural condition, which is his condemnation to hell, to the place that he believes the gospel, and then his glorification in heaven as a believer. Uh, Tonight I want to shift the focus somewhat and concentrate now on the heart of of people who have received Christ. And I want to focus on the preparation that we need in our own hearts in order to uh, talk to people about the Lord. And so I want to talk to you about what a church should be, what the characteristics of a church should be to be a growing church. Acts, of course, is the history of church growth uh, in the first century, and we find the model church in the book of Acts. This is a church that took Christ's command to evangelize the world very seriously, and so in a very short period of time, by the end of the first century, the entire known world had been reached with the gospel of Christ. Now, the church was in existence, having been founded by Christ, but they were in a I guess what you would call a waiting mode, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost. And then when the Spirit came, it energized them and empowered them to speak the name of Christ in boldness. After Peter's sermon on Pentecost, there were 3,000 people that were saved in one day. 120 was the membership of the church before that sermon, 3,120 after that. And we can imagine with that church growing so rapidly in a short period of time that that would make for some very serious issues in the church, some growth problems. And a church would be tempted at that point to turn inwardly and to focus on their own needs. Now they've got a large church. Now they've got their own body of people. And so they can begin to concentrate on what's happening on the inside and not be so concerned about what happens outside. But that's not the way that this church was. Instead, they continued to reach people because in the background was the energy and the desire of hearts that had been prepared to continue the work. Now, that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the power behind that first sermon at Pentecost. And in an instant, 
120 mushroom to a 3,120. And that's because their hearts had been prepared. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And that happened only in that unique way, only one other time in the history of the church. And it took place just a short time afterwards. And that is Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentile Cornelius and his family. Now, in the passage that we're going to read tonight, we see another outpouring of the Spirit. But I want you to understand, we're not talking here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, nothing like that, because that occurred at Pentecost, and it occurred uh, with the Gentile Cornelius, as I said, in Acts chapter 10. And we don't have that baptism of the Spirit in that way today. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture And uh, again, it's not the unique baptism that we find in Acts chapter 2, but the apostles are continuing the work of God in in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And there were other times when thousands were saved. Uh, But we want to look at what happened to these particular 3,000 that had been brought into the church after Pentecost. Well, those people had to settle into church life they became the spiritual house of God, as Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. And every meeting of the church and every sermon that was preached was not an instantaneous, breathtaking, heart-throbbing, supernatural outpouring where 3,000 people get saved in one day. That's not the normal way that things are done. Uh, God can still do that kind of work today, but it's not the normal way. The way that a church usually grows is that people get saved and then they began to take up their place. They, they learned their place uh, in the church. They learned how to talk to other people. They begin, they're discipled in this, and they learn how to give the gospel to others. And so usually church growth is something, real church growth, is something that's sustained over a long period of time. So people come into the church. They get the instruction of the word. They receive their training. And as they do, they increase in their love for Christ. And in turn, as Scripture shows us, that when our love for Christ is increased, our love for other people will be increased as well. We'll love their souls that they, and know that they need to be saved. Now, I need, I'd like for you to look here at Acts chapter 4. And this, this might be an unusual place for us to start. It's certainly an unusual passage, especially the last part of chapter 4. But this is a look into church life in the first church at Jerusalem. And in some ways, what they practiced was different from ours. They existed in a different time than ours. But the core elements for what's needed for the preparation of God's people is found in this passage. So I want to begin reading here in verse number 23. And this is still the aftermath of the healing of the man in Acts chapter 3. And in the last part of that third chapter... Peter and John had appeared before the Sanhedrin. They'd been brought in for questioning, asked why that they were preaching in the name of Christ and how the man was healed and so forth. So they left this assembly or left the, uh, the uh, appearance that they had before the Sanhedrin. And we take up the story here in verse number 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, 
Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Have you thought about what kind of church that you would like Brian Baptist to be. People look for churches for different reasons. Uh, Sometimes people are attracted by the social activities that go on in a church. They may be attracted to special classes that that deal with specific problems like divorce or alcoholism, single parenting, and things like that. Some want a church because they have a particular felt need and they find a church that meets that need and uh, a church that can take care of it. But imagine if you were able to be a part of a church that was growing in leaps and bounds. You have, as I said, 3,000 people in one of the services that is saved, and and then right after that, there are 5,000 people that are saved at another service. Imagine being a part of a church where the extraordinary is normal and where miracles are a part of everyday life. Imagine being part of a church where... The people witnessed the prayers that they made to God answered immediately where all the members love one another as they should, where the power of God is in evidence when those people meet and that Jesus Christ is truly the centerpiece of everything that goes on in that church. Now, if I could find that kind of church, I would say, that's my kind of church. That's what I want my church to be. Well, the early church in Jerusalem was much like that. They enjoyed just a miraculous display of the presence and the power of God on a daily basis. They saw souls saved in abundance. Uh, They were actually living in a time when the extraordinary was the order of the day. And we noticed that seeing what happened to Peter and John and reading afterwards what happened to this church, persecution didn't stop them. Uh, There were lots of good things that were happening in the church, and so they thought that the risk that they took for Christ was well worth it. And really, they didn't consider it to be a risk at all because their lives belonged to Christ. And whether they lost their lives here or they were talking about life in heaven, that really didn't matter to them. They were persuaded to give everything to the cause of Christ. So I want to look at the characteristics of this church. And I've got a couple of message I want, messages I want to preach on, that, preach on it. And we want to see why, why God blessed them so much. And I want to remind you of this, that the God that they worshipped is the same God that we worship. God hasn't changed. Now, people may have changed in many ways. Churches today are somewhat different than they were in the first century. God doesn't change. And what we need to do is look at what these people did and take that as an example and use it in our church. Now, here's where I want to start this evening. We're going to spend all of our time in just this first point. As I said, we do have another message in a a few weeks on this. But I want you to notice, first of all, that they were a worshiping church. This is a church that believed in worshiping God. Now, we, we have so many areas that we can talk about when it comes to worship. And my purpose tonight is, is not to deal with the theory of worship, not to give you a lot of details about what worship means. So I'll just give you the shortened version of what it means to worship God. Worship is the awareness 
of the presence of God. And worship is what we do in response to the awareness of God. Now, if you want to read a good book on worship, I would suggest that you would get John MacArthur's book. It's a, it's a good book and probably a, one that would be good for us to study at a later time and discuss worship in detail. We might well do that. But worship is a way of life for a Christian. It's not an optional way of life. This is what God has, what God originally intended us for, what he made man for. It's what he created us for. And actually, when we become born again, that's what he recreates us for. It's the worship of God. Now, as we look at this passage, though, I want to show you what the people did and how their worship was just a major part of the preparation. Worship is a part of their preparation to win people to Christ. I find four activities of worship in this passage, and I need to start with the very basic fundamental of what they did as a church. Look at verse number 23. And being let go, that's Peter and John, and being let go, they went to their own company, that is to the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, or when the people of the church heard what had happened, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Now, here is a very basic fundamental of worship, and that is they worship God with their presence. They lifted up their voices in one accord. And in verse number 31, it tells us that they were assembled together. The church is a corporate body. And despite what you've heard about universal invisible church theory, a church is not a church unless it is assembled together. In other words, we don't have the Berean Baptist Church in your home. And the Berean Baptist Church is, is not at the mall. The Berean Baptist Church is not at Safeway. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is when the people are assembled together, when the body comes together. And when we come together, we come to worship God in spirit and in truth. This church had a particular time to meet, a place where the people would get together, and they had a particular time for them to meet. Now, they didn't have a building, of course, like we have today, but they met in other types of places, sometimes in fields, in open areas. But the idea here is that it's the people assembled that make up the church. And that's really the meaning of the word church. The church is a called-out assembly. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, notice that first part. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Now, the fellowship of the church is where we find this corporate worship. And whenever there is worship, there's always going to be the word of God. The doctrines of the apostles were built upon, based upon the word of God. And that's because that's the only revelation that God has given us. He hasn't given us anything else. So the only place that we can go to find out what true worship is, is to God's word. So your church then is the place that you receive this kind of instruction. And when we come together and we hear the word of God read and heard the word of God preached, that is an act of worship. Some of you may not be listening when you come. You may sit there and turn me off or tune me out. You may do that, and you're not actually worshiping. You're here, but you're not worshiping. But if you're listening, and you're letting God speak to you through his word, then you are engaged in an act of worship. And I wonder how many of God's people should be here tonight. They should be worshiping with us. 
I mean, rarely do you find people that miss church services that spend their time in the Word of God trying to worship Him. They're usually not doing that. Some do, but most don't. So we were made for worship, and we were saved for worship. And I think this is why Hebrews tells us that as a church, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The church worships God when it assembles for the instruction of the Word. And this first church was a successful church because these people knew that they needed to meet together to get the instruction of God's word and to worship him as a corporate body. Secondly, we notice from this text that they worship God with their praise. I don't have time to go into an exposition of verses 24 through 28 and break down every statement that's here, but here we find their words of praise. And what they do is they quote the record of God's mighty work in the crucifixion of Christ. You know, some people may think, well, that's an odd thing. Praise God for the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, Crucifixion was a terrible crime. That's what most people would think. But the crucifixion is not something that was unforeseen by God. This was his plan from the very beginning. And the opposition that the church received for giving people the gospel of Christ, that wasn't unforeseen either. Remember, Jesus told the disciples that they would be persecuted. The world hated him, and so they're going to hate them. They'll hate the message that they bring. So you might expect that what this persecution would do is that it would, you would have a worship service that was sad, where there was weeping and wailing and crying and complaining because of all the persecution. But that's not what we find here. These are people that praised God because they knew who God is. They know who God is. Now, verse number 24 shows us some things that they praise God for. First of all, they gave praise for God's person. It says, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. We need to take some time to praise God for who he is. Praise God for the things that make him God. We praise him for his holiness, for his grace, for his mercy, for his goodness, for his love, for his presence, for his power. Praise God for all of these things that make him what he is. In the Song of Solomon, there's a, there's a picture there of the Lord's church. And as the bride is, de, is describing her love for the, her husband... She said, he is altogether lovely. Everything that there is about the Lord Jesus Christ is lovely. John Flavel, who's my favorite Puritan, has a sermon on the text of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse number 16, with the title, Christ Altogether Lovely. And so whenever we think about the presence of Jesus with us, that we think about how lovely he is, what a lovely name he has, the worth of his name. He's worthy to be praised. Next, we see that they gave praise for God's provision. Verses 25 through 27 recount the hatred of the world towards Jesus, and that hatred actually led to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. And there it says that the kings and the rulers of this world stood up against him, but though the world hated him, we thank God that he's given us the provision of his Savior. If there was ever a valid reason for you to praise the Lord, it would have to be this, and that would be the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Think about the death of the Savior. And if you can think about what he did, if you can think about how he 
paid this debt of sin that we owed to God and how he set us free. If you can think about how, as a believer, that he did all of that personally for you when he, had, when he was obligated to do nothing for us, if you can think about that and not praise God, then there is something seriously wrong with you in your Christian life. You think about the death of Christ and you can't help but praise him. Now, I thank God that when Jesus was on the cross that he had me on his mind. You know, there are many people that teach that the death of Christ was a hypothetical death, that it becomes a payment for sin when someone actually decides that they're going to come to Christ. And, but I don't look at it that way. I don't believe that Christ's death was a hypothetical payment, but it was a payment that was made for those who do come to Christ because that was planned to be so. So I'm glad that he's not a potential savior. He's the savior of all who believe. And I was brought to him through the preaching of the gospel, and he gave his life for me. I see that as a very personal thing. And that's what real saving faith in the Lord is. It is a very personal thing. When you recognize that what Jesus did on the cross was absolutely and without question for you, that he saw you, he knew your condition, knew your problem, he knew that you needed to be redeemed, And so when he was on the cross, you were also on his mind. If you're a true believer, Christ was thinking about you when he died on that cross. So that's cause for worship. And it's also cause, it really ought to lift our hearts to the place that what we want to do is we want to tell other people about this. We know what Christ has done for us, and we have a desire to tell them what he can do for them. So I praise him because every beating that Christ took, every minute that he spent on the cross was all spent for me, that he was willing to die personally for me. Thirdly, we see that they gave praise for God's power. Verse 28 mentions the hand of God. It says, for to do whatsoever thy hand. And when you see a phrase like that in Scripture, the hand of God stands for his power. The hand of God speaks of the might that God has in creation and his ability to control all things. Nothing is done outside of the power and the permission of God. And you might not think so sometimes. You see the wickedness of a place like we live in here, and you see where in this area of the country, a very liberal area where the wickedness of man is actually flaunted in the face of God. You would think, well, God can't be in control of that. But God does have control of it all. He's in control of his church. By his power, great things are done through God's church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And have you thought about that? Do you see a reason to praise God for this? Because God's power is actually channeled through the members of his church. I've often said, and I'm convinced that the New Testament teaches this, that God's plan and program for the world now is his church. In the New Testament age, God's plan is the church, and so nobody ought to stay outside of God's church because this is the place that has been sanctioned to do God's work. Christ loved the church, the Word of God says, and gave himself for it. And if Christ loved the church then everybody who is a saved person ought also to love the church. 
So we magnify, we glorify, and we worship God for all the mighty works that he does through his church. And so I can put it simply to you. The church is the appointed place for the glory of Christ. So a church that praises God for his power, that's my kind of church. That's what I want Brian Baptist to be. I want us to be a church that we know from whence the power comes. That's part of the preparation to reach the lost. And that's understanding that the power to do it is God's power. We don't go in our own energy. We don't convince anyone by our powers or persuasion. It all comes by the power of God. The saving power is God's power. Fourthly, they gave praise for God's providence. Verse 28 speaks of God's providence. It says, For to do, or these people are all gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So when they praised God for his providence, they were praising him again for that, that all things are under his control, that he orders and he directs, that God never leaves anything to chance. And the reason that you can praise God for the most trying experiences of your life is because God is in control. And every movement that God makes, in some way he promises that he's going to do, do something for your good. We don't often see that. We, only, we, we can't see far enough ahead many times to understand that what God is doing will work out for our good, but that is the absolute promise that we have in the word of God. And you know it very well in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so those who know Christ have this sustaining power of God throughout all the trials of their life. So in God's providence, we can be confident that God is going to lead us where he wants us to go. He'll have us do what he wants us to do. And we can be confident also that he will lead us to the people that he intends to save. Now next we see that they worshiped God with their prayers. Everything from verse 24 through verse number 30 is a prayer. Verse number 31 says, and when they had prayed. And in that verse I read earlier from chapter 2, the scripture says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The early disciples were people that persevered in prayer. They possessed a very active prayer life. You see, to them, prayer was more than just a ritual. It was more than a habit that they went through. It was more than something they were just supposed to do once in a while. Their lifeline and their link to the power of God came through their prayers. So they prayed as individuals. But I think as we're looking at this passage of Scripture, it's impressing upon our minds here that they prayed together as a church, that they were united in prayer. The whole body of believers, they believed that God answered the corporate prayers of his church. Now, I think we see this in the first chapter, verse 14 in Acts. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That's the whole body together. Someone has said that these people prayed for 10 days and preached for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people got saved. Whereas we pray for 10 minutes and preach for 10 days, and nobody gets saved. We say, what's the problem? Prayer, usually. Prayer, because that's the way that we receive God's provision. We receive spiritual and physical or material provisions through our prayers. James said it very simply. He said, you have not because you ask not. So maybe we don't have everything that 
we would like to have for our church because we've not asked God to give us what we need. Now, this, this church made it a daily practice to pray, to supplicate God for what they need. Hebrews says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we, may, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why did they continue boldly to the throne of God, to the throne of grace? Why did they do that? Because they had the promise that they have an advocate with the Father. They have a promise that Jesus Christ himself would intercede on their behalf. The Bible says we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so if we want to be a growing church... We can't be negligent about praying to the Lord. Our hearts are prepared for evangelism through prayer. And then finally tonight, and we've certainly not exhausted the scope of worship. I said that's not really my purpose tonight to go into all these different aspects of it. But I would like to add this, that they worship God with power. Now what I'm trying to get to here is to show you in just a moment that their worship to God led them into this act of reaching other people for Christ. So they worship God with power. In other words, they, they don't have just ordinary church services. As soon as they finish pre, pre, uh, praying, rather, they experience an immediate answer to their prayers. Results happen when people are in tune and when they're listening to the voice of God, when they're supplicating, asking God for what they need, results will come. Now listen to the results of their prayers. First of all, the Bible says here that the place where they met was shaken. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. When God shows up, things get moving. You can't hide the moving of the Spirit. See, when people are stirred up to do God's work, God's people get moving. And in this case here, we find that God shook the whole building when people got their hearts right. I remember one night I was preaching on a Wednesday evening. We had a hail storm, and the hail was coming down on top of the building so loud I couldn't, couldn't hear myself think. And then when I was preaching on another night, and there was an earthquake. And you remember that. The building was kind of swaying back and forth in that earthquake, and, and I wasn't too sure what was going on. Either it was God saying that message is so powerful that he shook the building, or it was the devil saying, I need to shut you up, so I'm going to shake the building. I'm not sure what it was. But I do know this, there is power in the preaching of God's word. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will move you and shake you. When you listen to the Spirit, you start appropriating the word of God in your life. Now don't think for a minute that Pastor Smith has gone crazy here because I'm not talking about physical shaking. I'm not talking about jumping over the pews and crawling under them and barking like a dog and doing all of that, talking all kinds of gibberish. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying when the Holy Spirit shows up, he affects the inside of you so that you know that he's there. And he gives you that strong desire to follow him and do what he wants you to do. I mean, do you ever come to church and you find that church services are very dull, mundane, and boring? Well, it might be because as you're listening to the messages preached, you're not applying them to you. And I see this happening a lot of times, that when the messages are preached, people are staring around the room. I wonder who he's stepping on tonight. 
And they don't see that that message is intended for them. That they're supposed to internalize the word of God and realize this is supposed to affect me. And so I think a lot of times we feel that church services are boring, there's not enough going on because we're not really listening to the word of God and appropriating the word of God in our own lives. So what we need to do is start listening, hear what's being said, appropriate that, and there will be some moving and shaking with the power of God. Secondly, the people listening were filled with the Spirit. So when the Lord moved, those that were looking for something got it. Now, in the last part of verse 31, it says they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And I realize that as Baptists, when we begin to talk about the moving of the Holy Spirit, we have to be very clear about what we mean. Because this stuff has been so misused and taken out of its context and taught in the wrong way that whenever you start to talk about the Holy Spirit, people get all these different kinds of things that are going on in their imagination. And they think that, well, what you can get is a separate filling of the Holy Spirit other than what you get when you get saved. Now, when you get saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. You get him then. He comes to live in you. What you may not have and many times in your life you don't have, is a filling of the Spirit where the Spirit is operating through you by your yielding yourself to his work. And this is the problem with, with us many of the time, um, much of the time, that we, we're, we're not listening to the Holy Spirit, we're not looking for that filling of the Spirit. But imagine what could happen if every member of the church was doing exactly what the Bible commanded. That our communities were filled with the Spirit. Our family was filled with the Spirit. Ourselves, our church, all of us here are filled with the Spirit of God. Then we know that there would be some shaking and moving going on throughout the entire community. We'd see a difference in families. We'd see a difference in our own lives. We'd see a difference in the things that we attempt to do for God. So God's command is for all of his children to be filled with the Spirit. And that's not an exclusive command for certain super saints. doesn't mean, well, the pastor, he's the one that's supposed to be filled with the Spirit. The deacons, they're the ones. Sunday school teachers, they're the ones that need to be filled with the Spirit. No, no, no. The Bible commands every Christian to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's yielding yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So they were shaken and they were filled And here's the point that we really need to come to, that when this happened, the proclamation of the gospel was sounded. The result of these people getting right with their worship and being moved in the spirit is what they did afterwards. They spoke the word of God with boldness. And so when God began to move in their hearts, they couldn't remain silent. And that's what happened when God gets hold of your life. You can't help but want others to know what you know. You want others to know what he's done for you and what he can do for them. Now, after reading this, these things about worship that we find in the scriptures here, can you imagine that there would actually be some Christians that didn't want other people to know that they were Christians? They tried to keep their Christianity a secret? Can you imagine that there are people that actually live that way? that they don't want others to know that they're saved. Do you personally know any Christians like that? Ever met anybody like that? Some people look around the room again and they'll say, yeah, I know somebody over there just like that. They're ashamed of their Christianity. 
I'm not asking you to look around the room today. I'm asking you to look a much shorter distance because there's somebody that you know that's very dear and near to you. You know better than anybody else, and that's you. You can look down into your own heart and ask yourself, do I really want people to know I'm a person of faith? Do I really want people to know that I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior? Do I really want people to know that there's something that I stand for, there's a God that I live for, and I want them to know this God too? Can you look down inside of yourself and say, that is really my desire? You know what kind of church I want our church to be? My kind of church is a church where people worship God. They worship God with their presence. They never forsake the assembling of themselves together. They worship God with their praise. Everything that they do is to give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's primary. That's first in their lives. They worship God with their prayers. They believe that God answers prayer and that God works through prayer. And they worship God in power. Now, do we want our church to grow? Then we have have to start doing what this church did. And it begins with worshiping God. And when you worship him, God will move you into the work. Now, that really, that's where we're going to take up next time. It's going to be a few weeks down the road before I actually get to the second part of this sermon. And that second part is going to be that a growing church is a working church. A growing church is a worshiping church, and a growing church is a working church. So if we want God to grow this church, we have to be ready to do the work that God has called us to do. We have to dedicate ourselves to the calling that God has given every one of us as his people and as members of this church. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would take this message tonight and use it for your honor and your glory. I do pray, Lord, that all of us would look deeply inside and see what is it that we truly desire. Do we truly desire to worship you? Do we want friends, family, our acquaintances, those around us to to know about you? And I would dare say from the top to the bottom in this church that all of us can do a much, much better job than we've done in the past. Lord, what we want to do is to be a church that yielded to your spirit, that we are here and we have become members of Brean Baptist Church because we are a like group that has the same goals, same desires, same God that we serve, and we know that our purpose is to give our entire lives to you, that your will may be done. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to dedicate ourselves to you now. Let us be the ones, let us be the ones that you send out to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.